and welcome to the sixth edition of the About IBD podcast. I'm your host, Amber Tresco. Today I have an episode that's all about travel, and I asked my good friend Jamie Weinstein to talk to me about travel because she does a lot of it, both for work and for pleasure. And not only that, but she is an outstanding advocate. She really does know how to stand up for herself in a way that I think I have never even considered. And so the tips that she was able to give to me that we are now going to share with you are really helpful for when you're driving or you're flying and things perhaps aren't going so well and you do need to let people know what's happening in order to make everything go a little more smoothly for you. You'll notice that this episode is a little bit longer than some of my other episodes, and that is because Jamie had so much great stuff to say, and actually we probably could have kept going, but, you know, all good things must come to an end. Anyway, here's my friend Jamie from Pretty Rotten Guts, as she tells us how to travel like a pro with your IBD. I have Jamie Weinstein. We're going to talk about traveling with IBD or maybe even just traveling in general. And I I was thinking about this topic today before I called you. And I was thinking about how different for myself it has been since I had my J-pouch surgery. Because traveling with ulcerative colitis was crazy. (laughs) And you travel a lot for work and for pleasure. So... Can you tell about how many times a year do you travel? When I first relapsed, um, my travel went down considerably, but only for a few months because I still had a very sick grandparent. I had friends getting married um, in my hometown, which was three hours away from where I live. And my little cousins, it was kind of like my, my refuge. So if I wasn't working, I didn't want to sit at home and be running back and forth to the restroom. Not that this is totally a bathroom disease, but at that point in time, a lot of my symptoms were digestive issue related. So I was like, if, if I can be anywhere, I might as well be with family and with friends as long as they don't mind me getting up and walking to the restroom whenever I needed to. But getting from point A to point B, which is just a three hour drive, could sometimes take me six to seven hours. Wow. Yeah. So because you were pulling over all the time? Yeah. So what I would end up doing was, um, especially for that drive, um, it's, it's pretty easy route with the highway and it's the same highway all the way down. And so every 20 miles or so, there's at least one exit. And what I, I tend to do, and I recommend this to people, there's either going to be a Cracker Barrel or there's going to be a Target or a Starbucks or a Target with a Starbucks. And so if you're driving for a three-hour stint anyway, you should pull over every hour to hour and 15 minutes to at least stretch. Um, I, I have a weird compulsive mind, and one of, my, one of my issues that I'm severely working on and still working on, especially after losing a friend to this, is a fear of blood clots. So I, staying stationary for too long freaks me out. So when I'm driving, I, I try to break up the drive and at least get up and walk for 10 minutes. And if you're in a Target, it's so easy to accomplish that. Just walking from the parking lot into the store, let alone wherever else it is that you're going, whether it's to the restroom or to go and grab a drink or a snack or to peruse the dollar to $5 section, which is always fun. So that, that breaks up the trips a little bit. But when I was super sick, I was pulling over like every 30 to 40 minutes. And the pullover time alone could be anywhere between five to another 20 minutes. So before I knew it, a three to a three and a half hour trip with traffic was turning into five to six, even seven hours sometimes with traffic. I think that's a really good tip is to just almost when you have something available that you can pull over and Mm -hmm. take a break and maybe go to the bathroom, just take that opportunity sort of like, just don't let it go by. And, um, I like your suggestion of a Target, a Starbucks, a McDonald's, mm-hmm. you know, a Burger King, any of those places, yep. hotels. Um, I, you know, I sometimes will look for that. I think a lot of people don't think of that, but they always have restrooms in the lobby. Um, so, yeah, if there's, especially if you're in an area where there's not the prescribed rest areas, yes. you know, every so often. 
And it used to be, if you didn't travel a particular way all the time, it would be like, where's the next rest area? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. now though, you pull it up on your phone, <laughs> or, you know, and you can actually see how far away it is. Yes. And that might give you some measure of comfort there. Definitely. So for road trips, I have a rule. And the rule is listen to your body. If you start to get those warning signs, um, for me in particular, and I mean, I can only speak on my own experience, I will sometimes get warnings for up to an hour before just the, the cramping and the, the weird queasy feeling before an attack were to happen. And that attack could last for five minutes or it could keep going for an hour on and off. But if I start to get those warning cramps and then they go away for 20 minutes, I'm like, okay, good. I'm, you know, they're, they're going to go away. It's few and far between when I get that, that weird crampy feeling and it's no longer there. So one of the, one of the rules that I've finally set in my mind in general is if I start to have that feeling, I'm going to pull over, I'm going to find a restroom or a place that I'm comfortable walking around in and waiting for about 10 to 15 minutes to see if that feeling returns because trapping yourself on a highway where, cause this happens when you start going through rural parts of Florida and even in New Jersey where I used to live, especially there, um, you could go 20 to 40 miles before the next rest stop. And you don't even know if the rest stop is going to be open because they've closed a lot of rest stops up there. And even here, um, our rest stops along I-75 and I-95 are spaced out 20 to 30 miles, I believe. And if you're in a rural area, you don't know if there's going to be an exit to pull off of, or if when you pull off of that exit, how many more miles you're going to have to drive before you find a safe place that a safe, safe place to pull off at, not just some rinky dink gas station that may or may not have a usable restroom. You want a place that you know is going to be somewhat clean, hopefully, and well lit and that there's people around. So that's, that's one of my, my biggest hard rules when I'm traveling in the car. But you know, when I'm flying, I usually look for the signs for where the restrooms are as I'm walking to the gate and proximity. And before I get on the plane, I've already spoken with the airline as far as where my seat is. And I do ask for handicap accommodations, not just for my arthritis, but for the, the pure fact of there's rules that they've put in place, especially when the, the terrorism risk is at a higher level. They don't like people standing in the aisle waiting for a restroom. You're allowed to stand in the aisle at your seat. And that's if they're not doing beverage service. And sometimes beverage service can last almost the entire flight. So there's a bunch of rules that they keep putting in place. And so I have to work within those parameters without getting in trouble. So another tip that I I try to encourage people online when I speak to them, offline when I speak to them, if you're traveling, be open. Talk to the airline's handicap assistance person. Every airline has one. Talk to um, the person that just helps with reservations and they will do your accommodations or they will transfer you to a special section that handles handicap issues only and they will make seat adjustments for you it could sometimes it gives you better seats and upgrades that you don't have to pay for which is awesome Um, but that's not always the case sometimes I pay for it if I have extra pocket money and I think it's worth it and that I don't have to deal with them that's cool Um, but I still do the handicap accommodations because being able to get on the plane first and get myself settled. I also sanitize all the seats and the seat belts and sometimes my neighbor's seat because sometimes you end up sharing seatbelts by accident um, or they ask you if they can put something from their tray onto your tray for a second if they need to get under seat because I'm always a good seat neighbor. So I tend to sanitize the seat that's next to me as well. And then sometimes I sit down and start working on one seat and I'm like, I don't think I want the aisle today. I think I want the window. <laughs> so it'll end up at the window, which also means that I now have to sanitize the middle seat. Either way, I'm sanitizing the middle seat. Um, so it's just one of those things that I've I've gotten used to. I don't think I've ever done that. Like, it's never even occurred to me to really? do that. And that, yeah, and that's <laughs> a very good idea, you know, to, to sort of control your environment in that way. And I want to circle back to cost sure but so we have to 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 we'll have to come back to that more towards the end but the first thing that I want to cover is this handicap assistance 
So what happened? Like, walk me through it. What happens? You book your ticket. Like, like I don't know if you call. I remember having to call and book a ticket. That was horrible. Like, yeah. I always book my tickets online. So, okay, you've got your ticket, mm-hmm. and then you call and ask to speak to who? Yeah, okay. So there's, there's a couple scenarios that go along with this. If I'm traveling for advocacy work, and there's a secondary agency who's booking for us, I ask for the wheelchair accommodation. So they call ahead or they do it through their travel agency and the wheelchair accommodation is on there. About, I would say 10 days before I'm gonna fly, if I have that much leeway, even a few days before I'm gonna fly, I will call the airline as if I have a question about my reservation. And I tell them, hi, I'm calling to find out if I have a wheelchair designation. I may not need it, but I wanna make sure that I have it. Sometimes they will ask you, do you mind if I ask why? Now. Because of HIPAA, I believe it's it's not required for you to tell. But I always look at these things as a teachable moment. So I'm happy to explain, I have severe Crohn's disease. I also have severe arthritis. And when I travel, both tend to get a little dicey. So sometimes I'm okay to walk, sometimes I'm not. But I do need accommodations when I'm on the plane that I like to be as close to the restroom as possible. Now... When I flew, is it okay if I mention which airline? I don't think it's a problem. Are we going to talk about issues that you've had? No, no, not at all. It's just what I've learned from certain airlines. So Spirit in particular, because they they do tend to have smaller seats um, because they fit more people on the planes. So it's kind of like a sardine situation. The way it works with Spirit, um, you know, if you're going to pay more money, I think you get a better seat. Because I booked a flight at the last minute, I got the, one of the last reservations for that flight. They're, they did not have an accommodation seat available at that point because they had already been given to other people who, as far as I'm concerned, needed them a lot more than I did. So when I, I was talking to the agent, who was super friendly, she's like, look, there's a bathroom in the back of the plane. So I can either stick you in the middle so you have opportunity to make it to the front or the back where I can put you in the last seat on the plane and you'll just be one of the first people to sit down, but you will be on the last seat and you will be right by two restrooms. And that's exactly what I was calling for. I didn't call because I wanted to sit in the front of the plane. Yeah, it's great when you have bad arthritis and you don't want to have to hobble along. But what's worse, sitting in the middle of the plane and having to battle people at the front or the back for a restroom and maybe not getting it and then having to go back to your seat because they don't want you to wait there? Because especially in the front with the bathrooms over there, um, if the captain or the co-captain want to come out, they send you back to your seat. They block everyone off with a beverage cart. So with Spirit, I learned it's okay to take the last seat. You're going to be crammed in like a sardine no matter where you're sitting. Um, Southwest has been really cool and JetBlue have been really cool and Delta as well about accommodating more toward the front of the plane because they said, I think it's between six to nine seats available for people with health conditions. Um, and they're not always in the front of the plane, but they're within the first um, nine aisles that are not first class. So it can be like aisle six through nine or aisle six through 11, depending on how the seating arrangements are, two by threes or two, three and two, that kind of thing. So I just kind of stumbled along and learned these things along the way. But if you call the regular ticketing line and say, hi, I have this reservation, give them your confirmation number, tell them you have a situation with your health and you would need pre-boarding. And if you need wheelchair assistance, tell them as well and they will put the wheelchair designation on there. And I've had this conversation with the the, t- the gate agents as well as um, Skycap and the interior Skycap who really help you as far as getting a wheelchair is concerned that I have pre-board and I have wheelchair designation on here, but I think I'm okay right now for this leg of my trip to walk because I have enough time and I kind of want to stretch, but I'm going to definitely need a wheelchair at my layover. Can you make sure that it's marked on there? And sometimes I've had it where I only had the wheelchair designated for the first part of my trip and I'm glad I opened my mouth and asked. So I always do that when I get to the airport as well to make sure that everything that I set into motion few days before is still on paper in my hands or digital, you know, because everybody has the QR code digital apps now. I can see that, that on the layover, Mm -hmm. that that would happen a lot. Yes. That, you know, whatever uh, accommodations that you requested would 
not be designated on your layover like it was on yep. your initial flight out. So how early do you get to the airport in order to make sure that you can have all this happen and also have enough time to where you're not feeling stressed in getting right. to your gate? So ideally, I like to get there between 90 minutes to two hours before. Now, if it's an early morning flight and I know the airport is not going to be too busy, I'm going to get there 90 minutes before. Um, and that's including parking time. So that means that if I have to park and then take the shuttle over, that that's two hours because 20 minutes is, is taken up just between getting out of the car, getting into the elevator, getting on the tram, stopping for other um, airlines, whatever, and then getting out and possibly waiting in line for a sky cap to drop off my luggage. That's one of the reasons I like doing um, Southwest is because the luggage is included and I don't have to worry about lugging it. Um, you know, if I'm going to have stuff on carry on with me anyway, and it's usually all of my travel essentials. So if I don't have to take a suitcase with me, that's, that's even better. But, um, what's the other thing when I get on the plane, that's this is the other thing I wanted to circle back to before I forget. When you get on the plane, especially if you have pre-boarding, you're going to get greeted by a stewardess or steward. And when you walk on, you're usually, it's you and a few older people getting situated. And then there's going to be someone on the interior as well. Introduce yourself to them and be like, hi. So I just wanted to make sure that I'm going to have a wheelchair when I get off for my layover, if you have one. And also let them know that, you know, if they see you milling around by the bathroom, the reason why is because you have IBD or if you want to go so far as to say, I have Crohn's disease or I have ulcerative colitis. Or I have a medical condition that sometimes sends me to the bathroom a lot. If you don't feel comfortable disclosing that information. But in doing so, I've talked to so many people who have been touched by IBD in their lives. And I've also educated. And they've had questions where they didn't know how to handle certain situations with passengers. So I've actually helped. So opening your mouth is not, and sharing this information is not the worst thing in the world. And if anything, the more you do it, the more at ease you feel and the less stigma is attached to it. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, these are not necessarily comfortable conversations to have, and mm -hmm. you're probably going to feel uncomfortable while you're having them, but you still need to have them. Mm -hmm. And that's been my experience too. I, I usually don't have any problem talking to strangers, uh, about my needs, it's more talking to people that you see every day. Yeah. Um, but um, that, you know, I would say almost nine times out of ten, the person will respond and say that their life has been touched. Like you said, uh, a sister, a brother, a cousin, an aunt, uncle. They They almost always know somebody. So they have at least a small idea yep. of the accommodations that you might need and you don't always necessarily need to go into significant detail as far as that's Absolutely. Concerned. Or they know someone with IBS. And so I'll do the quick rundown. Okay, so IBS, it's a syndrome, it's not a disease, but yes, yeah, some people who are afflicted with severe IBS are in the bathroom more than I am, especially now that I'm, I'm a little bit more healthy. So, you know, if, if that, if IBS is brought up, I'm not going to go into like anger ball mode and be like, it's not the same thing. I just quickly educate. There is a difference. They're, they're often confused, but there are some similarities involved because your digestive system is, is affected and it can send you to the restroom. So I try to try to handle it with this as much compassion as possible because chances are that person has IBS <laughs> and, and they've had experiences. So it's it's one of those things that I, I like to have people understand that it's okay to talk about it and if someone makes a mistake, get over it. Yeah, and I don't and in that particular situation where you're on a plane mm -hmm. and you need to be near the bathroom and you need to let them understand yes. that if you're getting up and heading back there, you're not trying to be a nuisance or just wandering around like you have a purpose for that yeah um so and they're typically very understanding of that especially mm -hmm. when you're upfront about it I've even you know had to say to them I know that we're landing yes. I know that the seatbelt side is on I have to go back there right now yeah so I had and, a, I had a situation where that occurred 
Um, and we were in the, the 40 minutes where you start to descend and you're, you're nowhere near landing, but when you start to descend, they really don't like right. you getting out. Right. And so I had had a conversation with one of the stewardesses, but not with this one who was by the, by the restroom and we were hitting some turbulence and, um, just, it was like all happening at once. I was having an anxiety attack. I was feeling very sick and probably know it could have been more IBS than it was Crohn's, but it was happening. And there was no way that I could stay in my seat because it was going to get ugly otherwise. And so I, I got up and I went into the restroom and I, you know, calmly explained what was going on. She goes, it's okay, but just make sure you're back in your seat. Sure enough, as we started the actual descent to get to the airport, which is like the last 10 minutes, um, I needed to run to the restroom again. And so I did. And I looked at her. I'm like, I've, this is not my, my first rodeo. I know what's going to happen if I'm in here too long. And if we land and I'm in here, I'm apologizing in advance. And if you have to arrest me, I'm sorry. And like close the bathroom door. <laughs> and sure enough, we landed while I was in the restroom and people were deplaning while I was walking out of the restroom. And I just looked at her and I said, thank you for letting me use the restroom. And I joined my mother, grabbed our stuff and we got off the plane and I had to go and use the restroom again once we were, you know, safely inside the terminal. But I, I saw something the other day where a gentleman who had been sitting on a plane for three hours and they were just waiting to get permission to take off. He got arrested because after sitting there for three hours, he was not allowed to use the restroom and things like that scare me. And so that's another reason why I like to kind of open up a dialogue with, with some of the flight attendants to make sure that if I do get stuck on the runway or we're on the tarmac or we're stuck at the gate or whatever, but you were supposed to be remaining in your seat at all times and not get up and cause a disruption, that there's a reason why I'm getting up. I have a medical reason why. Exactly. And you, you don't want to be in your seat. They don't want you in yeah. your seat when this is happening. Right. You definitely need to go and use the bathroom. And I've even said to them, I understand, I understand this isn't exactly safe, but I'm accepting responsibility for what I'm doing right mm -hmm. now. And, you know, years ago, it wasn't such a worry about them uh, literally arresting you on yeah. a flight. That's really disappointing and upsetting when that happens. But I do think that if you get into a situation where you're being challenged, that you definitely need to do your best. And, and, and this is kind of ridiculous to say when you're in the middle of a flare up mm -hmm. and possibly dealing with anxiety yeah. and all of the other things, and you're just trying to get your to your destination. But you definitely have to pull out some deep reserve of calm yes. in the middle of all of that yep. and try to keep that even tone of voice and the smile on your face yep. and help them to understand that this is this is not a choice right now. This is not bad behavior. This is something that you have to deal with or there's going to be a bigger problem. Yeah, seriously. That, and it's, it is one of my fears also that you know, situations can get heated very easily. Someone can interpret someone speaking loudly as yes. being confrontational. Um, especially if you're on a plane environment, your ears are clogged. Sometimes yeah. you're not sure what your decibel is, or it's just the engine noise. Um, you know, when they're just powering the air conditioning can be a little bit loud and you want to talk over it. Or I have a tendency of not talking loud enough at times. And then people are like, you're mumbling. So then I talk louder and then it looks like I'm answering <laughs> angrily, but I'm trying to find the proper decibel because right. I don't like the way my voice sounds in my head. So half the time I just don't want to hear it. Well, I think that might happen with female voices to higher voices. That uh -huh. it can just be, some people can just have trouble hearing at that register. And so you're not, you're trying to be heard and still trying to indicate that you're this is, you know, you're not upset or acting out. Yeah. You're just trying to make yourself understood. So in all of these cases, t speaking to the flight attendants yes. first is really going to be the best scenario because then they're going to be like, oh, yeah. 
I know what's I know what's going on right now, and whether or not they need to um, speak to you about it or whatever is a, so is, much a, so. is a separate thing. But if you just all of a sudden, you know, the the plane is landing and you're running to the back of the plane, you, you know, that's not the best case. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like, all. I don't I don't want to be that person who's running because. Now, no. someone running on a plane can be totally interpreted wrong, and I don't <laughs> want to get tackled when I really need to use the restroom. It's the last thing that I want. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's just, no, none of us need that kind of hassle. It would just be all over. And, you know, the, the okay, so the thing about the cost. Yes. Now, the airlines are really, oh, gosh, and they all do it differently. <laughs> yep. It's your luggage, and then you can pay extra for certain Mm -hmm. things. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm like, gosh, you know, we talk about how IBD costs us personally and then society in terms of what our medications cost, what our physicians cost, surgery, and then time off from work, things like that. But just flying somewhere to take a vacation or to work you end up spending more money. Yeah. So um, in particular, when Delta first put out their, their I think their Delta Plus seats, but they changed the name a couple of times, um, the draw to those seats were not only getting a free adult beverage, if you were an adult in that seat, was the fact that you might get a premium movie, but you were getting newer seats and they were more plush. So... Think about this for a second. You're paying for something that's going to have a little bit more leg space. I'm short. So leg space to me is like hilarious because I just want my feet to touch the ground half the time. Um, When you have new seats, cool. No matter where you are, when it's a new seat, it's going to be a little bit more plush. But what happens when you have a super plush seat that's being sat on for hours upon hours every single day? It's no longer going to be plush. So you have to really consider the cost and the benefit and how much return on your investment you're going to get from sitting in that seat. If you're someone with longer legs, I definitely recommend it, especially if it's a longer flight. Um, I still sometimes, because of my arthritis, if my back is bothering me or even just uh, my lower back pain, if I'm sitting on a hard seat, you know, because once the, the cushion's gone in, in the airplane chair, it's super uncomfortable. It's like you're sitting on wood with some vinyl over it. Um, the pain at the bottom of my spine is intense, and then getting up hurts even more. It's just like any, I'm trying to relieve the pressure any which way. So there's um, these, I, I found them at TJ Maxx, I found them at Marshall's, uh, travel pillows that you can use for your head, you can use them as a seat, you can use them for whatever. It's And it just, sitting on any type of cushion helps relieve that strain. And I really don't care if people are looking at me because I'm traveling with a pillow that either I'm going to sit on or have, you know, around my neck or on my head, whatever. It's, it's at this point, if I'm traveling for two and a half hours, I just want to be comfortable because the first 45 minutes I'm good. It's the tail... And from the middle to the tail end of the flight is where it can be super uncomfortable for me sitting wise. So that's another you reason know what, why. Though? What? I see people bringing pillows like all the time now. Do you? I really do. In the airport. Yeah. I feel like so many people are just walking around with these little pillows. And when you say travel pillow, do you mean it look, kind of looks like a regular bed pillow, but it's just like small? So different. The you know those little U shaped ones or horse shaped ones, horseshoe shape. Okay. Yeah. So I've seen people use those, but let's be realistic. If you're going to sit on that, it's going to be awkward. So what I'm seeing more and more is it looks like a mini pillow. Some of them have these little. um, It's like a groove built into the material, so that if you're using a carry on suitcase and you pull your handle up, it just slides right onto there and rests there. Or mm-hmm. it happens to have a little piece of extra material and a snap, and you can, you know, snap it onto, um, wrap it onto one of the handles for your for a bag, you know, so that you're not carrying that as an extra thing in your hands and juggling it around. But, yeah, like little, little pillows. Um, I know even some of the, the new foam mattress companies that you see all over the internet, they're even making ones that you can sit on at your office and they're just as easy to travel with as well. And they're memory foam. So right. if, if you have a 20% coupon for Bed Bath & Beyond or 30% from Kohl's or any department store that sells memory foam pillows, you can find a small one, travel with it. 
you know, and then take an extra sheet or like a pillowcase that's cheap or whatever that you don't mind using for the airplane versus your hotel. Yeah, I got the travel pillows. I had a couple of them because I used them for my kids when they were really little, mm -hmm. when they first are able to have a pillow in their bed with them. And those little travel pillows were perfect. They weren't necessarily easy to find in right. like a store. I think it was Bed Bath & Beyond that I finally found them in. Yeah. And then um, the pillowcases as well. Mm -hmm. But it's not, I mean, you don't really, really you know, need a pillowcase if it's just, it's just if you're, if you're, you're a germ person. On. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one yeah, of the, I guess that's true. Yeah. But you can almost wrap anything around it. If totally. You, had to. you can even towel, you so. can use a blanket. Um, but one of the things that I learned while I was, um, boning up on some information for an article that I was working on was the fact that if there's a bed bug epidemic going on, wherever you're traveling, the carpeting in the plane can, is just as prone as the airport or a hotel. So if you're putting your bag on the floor under the, the seat, you can ask them, you know, hi, like a, a blanket. If they're giving out free blankets and use that blanket to put it on the floor and then have your bag there. Um, some, some of the travel experts were even talking about taking extra trash bags and using the trash bag as a liner for your seat and then putting the pillow there and then sitting on top of that or doing that for your bag that's under there. And quite honestly, what, what have you got to lose? You I don't care about looking weird, but I definitely don't want to take home extra travelers with me. So if there is an issue, there's, there's ways of getting around it. Not only that, but I, I'm like big on not putting my bag on the floor. I see so many people go into a public restroom and then go into the bathroom and they're going to the stall. Mm -hmm. There, whether there's a hook on the back of the door or not, it's really a toss up. Yeah. And then I'll see people just put their purse or yep. their backpack or what have you right on the floor. I'm and, guilty oh, of it. Wow. I know I'm guilty wow. of it, oh. but I, I carry Purell wipes with me. So <laughs> the minute well, I, you know. I mean, if you clean it, yeah. if you clean it on a regular basis, that's not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is get a little off track, but when you travel a lot, yeah. your, your things are going to be in a position where they're going to have germs on them. Mm -hmm. Then when you come home, you should probably clean the the bottom of your bags, especially if, if you've had to put them down somewhere. Yep. But also try to remember not to put your suitcase, for instance, on your bed. Yep. Or even if you come home and you have like a purse or a smaller bag, to not take that and put it, for instance, on your kitchen counter or your kitchen table. <laughs> because that's really... I mean, if you do it and you clean it off, like that's all fine and good. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I'm very funny about that kind of thing. I, I really, uh, I don't even, like, I don't put my bags on floors. I will put it, like, on my head before, like, around my neck before <laughs> I will put it on the floor. And when people want to put the luggage on the bed to pack it, I just, uh, <laughs> no, don't do that. Because it's been, you don't know, it's out of your sight for hours <laughs> while you're on a plane and no. where did it go and what did it come in contact with and what adventures did it have we don't know <laughs> so it's just no no thank you um and then speaking of yes. your luggage let's talk for a moment although this could be its own whole separate conversation <laughs> about you're bringing your medications with you. Yeah. You have to bring them through security, and then you need to bring them on the plane with you. And what are some things that you do to make sure that that's all handled in the right way? Yeah. So when it comes to medication like benzodiazepines, I always make sure that those are on me because it is, it's, it's a moderately controlled substance, but it's highly coveted, you know, as far as things that are, are going to be stolen first. But some, what I've noticed is now if, if medication is going to be stolen from a bag that's getting checked, they're taking everything, whether it's a chemo pill, uh, or an anti-inflammatory <laughs> or even vitamins, they're just taking everything and then they'll deal with it later and figure out what they're going to do with it, which uh, the fact that people are, are not even discerning in what, what they're taking is a little bit alarming. But um, I had one of those wake-up moments a few months back where I was traveling back to back to back, and it was like four weeks of travel straight, and I was just like, I don't want anything on me. I don't want to carry on. I just want my purse and 
my laptop bag and that was it. And it, it was old and beaten up, but it had wheels. So I didn't have to carry it if I didn't want to. And, um, at that point, the wonderful person inside of the airport where I was checking in my bag and going to get wheelchair assistance looked at me and said, honey, is there medication in there? Because I had checked in with them the week before and I had a bunch of carry on with me and like she recognized it. And I was like, yeah, I, I put my bottles in there and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, mm-mm. No, just, just because you can check two bags does not mean that you're going to check that. She's like, if you want to move stuff from the smaller bag into the bigger bag to get checked, do that. But you're taking that one on the plane with you. And I was like, oh my God, thanks mom. But she was right. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I was having one of those epic moments because I got too comfortable, but she was absolutely right. Just because I had the benzos on me, what I discovered later is I had two bottles because I'm like, a squirrel. I split things into travel bottles with, with my medical labels. And I happened to, in that, that travel bag with all of my medications, have the original bottle that was full and had just been refilled. So if I had checked that and that medication was taken, that would have been, um, you know, a month supply lasts me three to six months because I'm pretty good about not needing it as much anymore just for travel. That could have been a three to six month supply of my, my Valium that would be gone. And my doctor probably could not write me another prescription and insurance certainly wasn't going to cover it just because it was taken unless I filed, you know, a police report and blah, 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 which I would, but that's no guarantee that I would get that medication back because Valium still has that stigma of addiction and blah, blah, blah. So I'm glad that the, the person in the interior, um, luggage check, you know, enforced that upon me, like, you're going to do this and you're going to like it. And they were right because sure enough, when we got to one of our sites, one of um, our coworkers' medication was taken. So it's, it's a yeah, risk. And I think that, you know, we often think of it in terms of, well, you just want to make sure that it doesn't get lost and that yeah. you have it when you get to where you're going. But not only getting lost, and I think everyone has had their luggage at one time or another, go missing for several hours and it's happened to us where it's been for several days. And if it were something that you were, you needed right away that you were due, that's a big problem. But not only that, but then that stuff could get taken. Yes. You know, that's just the reality. That's the world that we're living in. Yeah. And with a controlled substance, yes. I, do you think that no one has ever tried that before? Oh, it got stolen, so give me more. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's, I mean, even if your physician, like you said, even if your physician was like, I believe you, and that's something that would happen, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that insurance is going to be okay with it. Right. So, Or that yeah. the pharmacy, for that matter, would release the medication. Right. Because they have to check with the FDA and all those other parameters. So, yeah, it was, I, I wound up getting stuck taking my little 21-inch roller onto the plane with me, and I wasn't so happy about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if that stuff had been stolen, it would have been 10 times as worse. I, I was pissed off when someone took my makeup. Makeup oh is a lot gosh. easier to replace. <laughs> So, no, yeah. well, it's just like, why? You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of unbelievable that that happens. And, but, you know, we have to assume that that could possibly happen every time you get on a plane. And if, and if it's something that, for instance, if it's an injectable and you're concerned about bringing it with you, yes. and then, but those things are you know, almost to the point of being prohibitively expensive. So let's talk about that. You can't risk that. Yeah. Yeah. So traveling with injectable medications, I never recommend it going under the plane because also it may, I don't think it's as, um, something about the pressurization and it gets really cold down there. Um, so injectable medications, uh, are prone to getting frozen really easily as I experienced in a hotel accident, so to speak. Uh, so when you're traveling, one of the first things that you want to consider is if you have an injectable, whether it's a diabetes medication that needs to be, uh, cold packed, or it is something that activates the minute it comes to room temperature, like in my case, Humira, which can last out of the refrigerator for 14 days. But like, that doesn't mean, um, you want it to be activated. So if you want to keep it at a a cool temp, 
there's a bunch of awesome things that you can look at on Amazon or even on uh, diabetes supply websites and blogs where they explain, okay, these are the packs that we recommend and this is why. And one of the things, especially EpiPens too, um, you don't want them getting exposed to being too cold and you certainly don't want them getting exposed to being too hot. So if it's the summer and stuff is in the luggage compartment of an airplane, it's really hot down there. Just like if it's super cold, it's going to get really cold in there because it's not climate controlled. So you want that stuff on your person at all times. Um, at one point, Humira had their own uh, cooler pack that you could use for travel. And it came with its ice pack, but you could fit any lunch bag ice pack in there, one or two. You wrap your, your pen or pens, depending on how many you're traveling with, in a towel or a paper towel to make sure that it's not in direct contact with the, the ice pack if it's not in its protective box. I still, even if I took the box, I was still wrapping it in a paper towel just to make sure because the box being cardboard, if there's condensation, is going to get a little bit wet and then, you know, that could actually cause it to get a little bit cooler in there. So, or when I say cooler in there, cooler with the pen or the injectable. So those were things that I took into consideration for medicine that I didn't want to activate right away. But one of the other things that I learned while studying EpiPens was that there's this material, if you've ever seen uh, for exercising or for during the summer, for outdoor events, there's these cool towels, you dip them in water and it activates them, they stay cold for two hours, it's, they're really cool. So they make these uh, bags that you dunk it in ice water, you wring it out and you can stick your EpiPen in it and it will keep them uh, cool for up to like seven days, it's seven, four days, whatever the amount of time is that they've tested for on that brand of packaging. But I, I think I saw ones that were up to seven days. I don't know if I would trust that, but you know, for people that are boating or for people that are doing a bunch of travel in the car, the car, if it's the air conditioning is facing up at your head, the wheel well is still hot. You know, if your bags are at your feet or in the back of the car, it's not getting as much airflow. So there's medications that say specifically cool, dark place. So those are things that you need to take into account. So sometimes I'll actually put in a duffel bag uh, one little cooler, like a lunch bag cooler, and stick some of my medication in there that's supposed to not be exposed to too much heat, um, especially in Florida during the summer when it's too, too hot and there's medication that I'm worried about getting pulverized from heat or from sunlight, you know, dark bag, cooler, tiny ice pack, doesn't need to be, you know, super cold in there, just chill. That's a good point. You almost have to treat all of your medications yeah. sort of a little bit precious. Yeah. You know, some more than others. Yeah. And even in the car, I mean, you can be in the front of the car, like you said, and you'll be cool. Yeah. And then even depending on where the sun is hitting – the back of the car, your luggage back there could be getting quite warm. Absolutely. And if it's in the trunk, hello, even worse. <laughs> Forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, it's better to almost keep it with you, mm -hmm. near you, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, on the floor at your feet in a cooler or something, something like that. I've only ever had to travel as far as injectables with EpiPens. And as far as getting through TSA and all of that, like it has never been an issue whatsoever. I used to carry a doctor's note and mm -hmm. I don't even do that anymore because it's, I mean, I recommend carrying a doctor's note um, if you can get one in time for your travel. Yeah. But even without one, it, I've, it's, I've not been questioned one time. Yeah. One thing that I realized, um, especially with TSA, depending on the threat level, um, when I first started injectable medications, I was super paranoid about having the cooler open and closed. Um, yeah. But I was also just as paranoid about having it going through the x-ray. So I had yeah. one guy who was like, we'll just hand check it real quick. We just want to make sure that you don't have any extra bottles of liquid or anything in there. I'm like, that's fine. But then I had one guy who was like, um, if we have to search that, we're going to have to search all of your luggage. And at that wow. point in time, I only had 45 minutes and I wanted to get coffee. And then I was like, risk, risk versus benefit at that point. So I was like, put it through the x-ray, whatever. I don't want to fight. Right. There's someone who was power hungry, whatever, but let them get off on it. So, you know, I, I pick and choose my battles. 
it's perfectly safe to put your medication through the x-ray. I just didn't want it getting bounced around. That was one of my like concerns because I already feel medication bounces around to a certain extent when we're walking with it, when we're traveling. So I was trying not to have it jarred by having it on the conveyor belt and getting jostled around with a bunch of other, you know, things. And, you know, sometimes it goes through the conveyor belt well before you're even able to retrieve it because you're still standing in line to go through your human x-ray. <laughs> So those, those are all the thoughts that are going through my head. So sometimes I was like, can I just leave this out and someone can, you know, hand check it real quick. And sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, that's a good point in that, you know, if you do have the time and you get to the airport early enough and then you're dealing with all of this that you can ask for the hand check for mm-hmm. any reason. It doesn't, medication or not, you can right. always ask for that. And yeah, what you know, I mean, honestly, this medication that you've, you know, you may have fought to get it and then it's expensive and then you're going to put it on this conveyor belt. And sometimes other travelers, uh, get a little antsy. They're in a hurry, whatever. And they're touching your stuff. And uh, yeah, that is extremely anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. So again, bringing it back to make sure that you're giving yourself enough time that if you need to ask for these special accommodations, that it's not, eating into your time to get to your gate and causing you a lot more stress and worry. And then if you are dealing with IBS-like symptoms mm-hmm. uh, or or an IBD flare-up, that you're having to take an extra time in the bathroom yeah. um, on your way. So that's unfortunate. So there's so many, there's so many things to consider when you travel. <laughs> it is. And you know, lists, my, my fiance always makes fun of yeah. me about this. Yeah, that happened too. Um, he always makes fun of me that whenever we travel that we have lists, but he is also the person who texts me the day before we're about to go somewhere because what he said he did, he totally didn't do. And <laughs> what are we supposed to pack, you know? And so I'll get a text message a few days before, what are things they should put in the laundry to do? And then I would tell him. But it, was, it wasn't a list list because it wasn't on paper. It was just a text. So then, you know, the night before travel, when, when I'm finishing up my packing, because I'm a last-minute Sally when it comes to that stuff, but I feel like I do my best packing at the last minute, I'm now doing his last-minute packing. So finally, I've just decided he gets a list. And it's as silly as it sounds that there's a list that says underwear, I, I know at least one person in each friend group who has forgotten to take underwear, a bra, deodorant. Uh, I've forgotten to bring a toothbrush. And most of the time, hotels now are wonderful in the fact that they have uh, toiletries that they will give out complimentary-wise if you've forgotten it or they're, they're near you know a drugstore if you need to go and pick them up because you have a particular brand or whatever that you need. So that's good. But being without essential clothing, <laughs> like underwear, really stinks. No, absolutely. And you don't want to be without your own things. Yeah. And so, you know, I have lists too. When I'm just traveling by myself, me, my, li- my, my list is pretty much in my head. Yeah. And I actually keep, and um, I think I've mentioned this to a few people before, but um, I actually keep a toiletry bag that's yes. uh, stocked oh. all the time. So it's that's my travel bag, and it just goes in the luggage. And yep. therefore, I know that it contains all of the things that I'm going to need on that trip. But when I'm traveling and I'm bringing two small people and a husband with me, <laughs> that is when the lists come out. Nice. And I'm going to tell you, it is an Excel spreadsheet with colors and the whole Oh, you fancy. Deal. Yes. Well, because I can't, I mean, I can't trust this stuff to my Swiss cheese brain anymore. And when you get someplace, I mean, we, we traveled to Detroit for my father's funeral and I forgot to pack pants for my husband. Oh my gosh. Like he had no pants. Like, I'm not sure why I did the packing at that time. It was probably a situation where like he was coming from work and I was packing and, um, we were just leaving right then and there. And we get there, the man had no pants. Like this is, you know, this is like literally worst case scenario. So having a list and then, you know what? You've really only got to make that list one time. And then you're using it forever. I mean, you might have to change it. You know, I don't know if people go like, I don't know, do people do this? They go on a ski vacation and then they go on a beach vacation. I don't know. I don't, we don't do that kind of thing. I never thought of that. You know, (laughs) but you have your list the one time. You're going for 
four days. Mm-hmm. You need, you know, X amount of underwear and X amount of pants and um, all of your toiletries. And with the kids, they need their snacks. Yes. They need snacks for there and they need snacks for the way back. And then everyone's various medications, mm-hmm. both prescription and over-the-counter. You make that list one time and then you're going off it. And then no matter what state you're in, mental or physical, mm-hmm. when you're leaving, you've got this list. Yes. And it's just get the next thing on the list. That's a, that's so. excellent points. And to go back to your point about um, important things to have for your carry-on, I also pack a pair of leggings, a pair of underwear, a pair of socks, and a T-shirt now. Oh, absolutely. Because. Every time. Yeah. And I, I didn't always do this, but now I, I do this not only because that takes one set of clothing out of my suitcase, you know, yeah. just in case. Um, I need more room to take stuff home, especially when you're going to conferences and you have swag that you need to bring back or brochures. Uh, the, the pure fact of, as you mentioned earlier, was what happens if my luggage is lost or delayed or it got sent somewhere else that wasn't with me? What do you do with no clothing? You know? So I, I now carry at least one set of, of change of clothes with me and one or two things of underwear because... Quite honestly, you can never have enough underwear with you. No, it's no. I always carry pants, underwear. Um, I didn't used to carry a shirt, but then I had kids, and sometimes stuff happens. And yep. then I would also carry a shirt, and I also packed that for the kids. Yep. And on top of that, I'm always making sure that I have the wet wipes, the toilet paper. Yep. Although I heard somebody else say that they actually carry paper towel rather than toilet paper. Um, mm. Anything that you think you're going to need in the bathroom that mm-hmm. you have at home. You definitely need to have that with you in your carry-on. And unfortunately, it does mean that at times the carry-on gets a little bulky and a little heavy. But I find that if you have a couple pairs of of anything, if if you have those wet wipes, if you have that um, extra barrier cream, whatever you have, if you're an ostomate, you've got your ostomy supplies, you're almost less likely to need it when you have it. So it's like just have all that stuff available. The amount of times that people have unfortunately told me stories about how they didn't have yep. extra supplies or they didn't have what they needed and got into a bathroom and then we're in a uh, then we're in a bad embarrassing yes. situation. It's kind of like, yeah, don't let that happen to you. Just you know whatever you think might happen, just always be prepared that the, that accidents happen yeah and you know you're gonna just if if you have all that stuff available you clean yourself up and move along nothing to see here go about your day yeah if you're if you're an ostomate especially um get a gallon ziploc bag and take a bunch of paper towels and just separate the sheets and so that way they're protected in the bag and they're zipped from the environment so that nothing else can get in but it's good to have the paper towels just in case you have a cleanup situation from leak or, you know, you start experiencing a leak and you need to apply pressure. You have something that hopefully can protect your clothing so that, you know, you can avoid the change of clothes. But also having a spare Ziploc bag is great. I take uh, grocery store bags with me. I'm, I'm one of those awful people. I don't bring my, my reusable bags. I, I collect plastic <laughs> bags. I use them for the dogs. I use them for travel. I use them for everything. And As long as you're reusing them, yes, it's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always have my home toilet paper because I have yet to find, except for one hotel that was in Chicago, that had a comfortable toilet paper. <laughs> oh no, never. I always I always I always stick a roll of toilet if I can fit a roll of toilet paper in there, yep. I will definitely stick it in there because I mean you just can't go wrong. It's not you're not gonna be sorry that you brought it. Yeah. That's never gonna happen. So just yep. stick it in there. I also ascribe to, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. I always have a towel. I'm I'm not even kidding you. I almost always have a towel. Yes. And when I had when I had an ostomy, I would have some uh, washcloths mm-hmm. because it's you can bring it on the plane. You get it wet if you need to, and then if you get them from the the, the dollar store yeah. or somewhere else where you find them on sale and you find them cheap, and then if you have to throw them out, you can throw them out exactly. And it's not such a it's not such a big deal. So this was like this is incredible. This is we unpacked so much stuff. Yeah. I feel like people are going to have to listen to this a couple of times. Possibly. Or we just break it up into a bunch of pieces. (laughs) 
No, one piece. Oh, Listen to it over and over again. <laughs> no, that's great stuff. Thank you so much for all your advice. You're such a veteran traveler. Well, thanks for having me. No, and make sure so that, you know, because I will potentially get it wrong, but tell everybody where they can find you on the interwebs so that they can continue to take advantage of all of your vast knowledge on travel-related subjects. Totally. So on Twitter, I'm Jamie Editor, but you have to spell Jamie like Jaime because my mother wanted to torture me for the rest of my life <laughs> with this awful spelling. So it's J-A-I-M-A-Z-A-N-A-R-Y-E editor so there's two e's so if you just type jamie Ditterer, it's not gonna work you need jamie <laughs> editor at and that's for twitter and then on instagram because i kind of got hip to the game it's slightly jaded and it's a play on the word jaded with j-a-i-d-e-d and um i also co-moderate a few closed and open groups and pages on facebook so if you want a closed environment where voyeurs cannot see anything that you post in there, I highly recommend going to find us at IBD Journeys. And the crux of that is if you are looking for IBD Journeys and you type in facebook.com IBD Journeys, you're not going to get us. You have to take the S off because that's just how it worked on Facebook at the time. And we're stuck with it now. Um, and then we have an open page with over 26,000 people at any given time. And there's a ton of advice and great community. And that's facebook.com slash support IBD. And I co-run that with Aaron Blocker, who's a fantastic human being and scientist and IBD advocate and husband. But not to me. Husband to his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, I, I know he's married, but just, just not, not to, to me. you. Yeah, I'm still you have, I'm your, you have your own thing going yeah. on. You know, I see you slipped that fiance in there at least one time. Just once. <laughs> just once. That's my limit. So wedding wedding to come. Oh my god. Oh, and then we'll have a whole conversation about what it's like to get married when you have Crohn's disease. Yay! Oh yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be a good podcast for you all unto itself. Awesome. So <laughs> You're gonna be my, um, you're gonna be my Steve Martin of of the About IBD podcast. Awesome, I love that. <laughs> Repeats. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And there you have it, my interview with my good friend Jamie Weinstein about how to travel when you have IBD, or really how to travel when you have any kind of chronic illness. Actually, a lot of the things that we talked about could also help people who have IBS, arthritis, diabetes almost any condition where you need to take your medication with you and plan ahead. You know, just to tell you a little bit more about my lists, I do use lists when I travel and it really is extremely helpful. And I also do have certain things that are packed, that I leave packed all the time. Things like uh, a phone charger, or like I said, toiletry bag, your extra underwear and um, your paper towel, Kleenex, whatever you're gonna bring with you, wet wipes. Those I keep all the time and I keep them stocked because as a secondary situation, if you do find that you need to go to the hospital or the emergency room and you need to get out of the house pretty quickly, having those things available and just being able to shove them in your bag and run out the door is really a great thing. I learned it long ago. I first, when I was pregnant actually, uh, one of my children came early and it was a good thing that I had all of that ready to go and we were able to just get out the door really quick and we had a lot of what we already needed. I'm so glad that Jamie explained where you can find her on the internet because I would never get all that correct, but I can tell you where you can find me on the internet. You can find me in most places as About IBD. So that would be on Twitter and Instagram and on Snapchat. You can find me on Facebook as About IBD, but I think the page name is actually IBD Crohn's. We always welcome questions, and especially in regards to travel, that's the kind, the kind of thing that different people can give different advice and there's always a new tip or trick out there so definitely hit up those support groups 
or get in contact with Jamie or myself if you need extra help when you're planning a trip. And please, don't let your IBD keep you at home. Please travel, take a vacation, see your family, have a good time, enjoy your life. Don't be stuck at home. All right, I will catch you next time.